The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow, the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. During these uncertain times, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees and reliably serving its customers around the world. SunGrow has also leveraged its extensive network across the U.S. to distribute face masks to communities in need. Learn more about SunGrow's work at sungrowpower.com. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the globe. CorePower is dedicated to promoting widespread energy storage adoption while maintaining control of the manufacturing process domestically in order to stabilize and protect our U.S. grid. CorePower designs and manufactures the 1500-volt Mark I energy storage system, which offers best-in-class safety features, market-leading energy density, and low installation and operation costs. Find out more at Core Power, that's K-O-R-E, corepower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, as anger over police brutality explodes into the once-empty streets, we tackle an equally oppressive force for Black Americans, environmental racism. Coronavirus has exposed an unsettling reality for black and brown people who are dying at higher rates in the country's most polluted communities. We're going to speak with a seasoned lawyer and organizer who is working on the mass melanization of the environmental movement. Will anything new emerge from this moment of pain? Then, if people lose their jobs and can't pay their bills, what does that mean for their safety in a summer heat wave? And what does that mean for the financial health of utilities? Finally, a new approach to residential demand response. Can 100,000 free smart thermostats result in megawatts of load reduction? I am here with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, my two co-hosts. Jigger is in Bethesda, Maryland there. He's the co-founder and president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. This is what democracy looks like. Mm, indeed. <laughs> we had a massive protest in Bethesda, which is crazy in this lily white town. They're all over the place. It's been really remarkable to see. I think all 50 states have had some movement building out in the streets over the last week. Catherine is usually in Washington, D.C. She is uh, in her home in uh, Arlington, Virginia now. She is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. Hi, Catherine. How are you doing? Hi, I'm fine. I'm very frustrated because I want to get out and march and express myself. My mother was able to do that in Lynchburg, Virginia even. And um, I just, my family has zero tolerance for COVID. So I'm I'm really frustrated. We're, we're trying to figure out other ways that we can pitch in and raise our voices that does not involve lack of social distancing and fear of COVID. Uh, well, we have a show coming up next week that we should mention before we get started. Uh, that is a live show. We are doing it from our homes and uh, presumably many of you are still in your homes. So come join us at 2 p.m. Eastern on June 9th. We're still trying to figure out what the topics are. I guess we'll figure it out as soon as we're done with this show. But we are certainly taking your listener questions. And uh, we already have a bunch of those. So we're going to categorize those and figure out how to address what you want us to talk about. You can sign up in the show notes. So let's turn to our lead topic. Overnight, America's attention shifted from an invisible virus to visible police violence. One, a science story. One, a story about race. 
but both are very much about racial inequity. For the past three months, COVID has hit Black Americans at an alarming rate. Their mortality rate is two and a half times higher than white Americans. That's caused by a wide range of factors. They're more likely to work essential service jobs where they're exposed to the virus. They're more likely to live in multi-generational households where the virus spreads. And they're more likely to live in sacrifice zones, these communities that are plagued by industrial and power plant pollution, which makes them more vulnerable if they get coronavirus. We're suddenly talking again about structural racism in policing and criminal justice, but the story of race, energy, and the environment is also very important for understanding the anger of the moment. And that is what our guest is focused on every day. Joining us is Tamara Tolls O'Loughlin, an environmental attorney and the North America director for 350.org. She was previously director of the Maryland Environment Health Network in Baltimore. She has a master's degree in environmental policy. Uh, Tamara... Thank you so much for being here. What is your state of mind right now? <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, I'll let you know in about a year or so when I can get in touch with my feelings. Uh, currently, it feels like there's a lot to do, and all of it implicates every single identity that I hold. So I feel like I'm personally and professionally engaged. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, your goal at 350.org and in your environmental career is the mass melanization of the environmental and climate movement. What does that mean? Uh, it means that my the one simple thing that I would like to accomplish uh, at the end of my work is that it is not a unique thing to see people who are impacted at every level of uh, the work that we do. So I think we have had a lot of different iterations of the conversation around race and environment. Very few of them have taken the simple fact that if you just take away race as a factor and deal with people as people, you end up doing better work. So what I want to do is make it so that it's not so unique that I'm in this chair doing this work. So let's talk about you know how environmental issues and pollution have played into the current coronavirus crisis. And then I think I want to broaden out and talk about this moment of pain and where the environmental justice movement fits in. So it's very clear that African-Americans have experienced this pandemic very differently. Uh, Dr. Robert Bullard, who is um, considered you know, one of the founders of the environmental justice movement, has referred to COVID-19 as a heat-seeking missile for Black people. As we think about the many factors that have contributed to that, what role has pollution played for African-Americans and their vulnerability to complications from the virus? Well, well, I'll say really simply that a lifetime of air pollution makes it possible to be vulnerable for your whole lifetime. Air pollution is known to weaken the immune system. And before I get really deeply into a lot of the studies that have talked about this and laid the groundwork for it, I think it's really important to mention, because we're in this moment, that the autopsy released for George Floyd yesterday showed that he tested positive for COVID in April only to be murdered by a police officer. So when I start to think about what the context of this moment looks like, it's about having a lifetime of impacts that show up before you are ultimately killed by the same. So uh, just to pull it back out from this really gripping set of facts that's pushed us into this moment, uh, it's really important to note that we've always known that PM 2.5 is really dangerous. And uh, among other things, it's under uh, that piece of information is under attack under this administration. But an increase of just one microgram per cubic meter uh, really um, 
translates to about 15% increase exposure uh, and risks for COVID-19 death. That's a pretty um, uh, stark revelation around the idea that uh, COVID-19 impacts on African-American communities are not random uh, and that it adds to compound problems and severe health risks that end up usually showing up as um, pulmonary risk, cardiac disease, uh, and a general uh, grouping of cumulative impacts that can even be triggered by common household volatile organic compounds. So it's clear that any human being who's been living in places that are more polluted over time is more likely to die from coronavirus. It just so happens that in America, that's racialized. So it means black people. So in one presentation that you gave, you put something up on a slide and you said, poverty is not biological. It is a function of design. What do you mean by it's a function of design? How do we apply that to the crisis today? Sure, the combination of environmental, social, and psychosocial risk is a killer combination. Uh, I often put that it's a function of design because I think uh, in the current world that we live in where you can build an organ on a, on a machine uh, that prints from your computer, people still believe that there are things that exist that cannot be undone. Uh, black people face death at birth uh, because there's so much toxic exposure in communities where we are zoned into through our communities and neighborhoods. Uh, contact with highways, pipelines, compressor stations, and factories built through our communities. Uh, I'm from New York, and, and one of the strange ironies of the many about that is that Robert Moses is lauded as one of, as one of the architects of urban design and is also one of the authors of death for so many communities whose design impacts meant their whole futures connected them to more pollution over and over again. Add that to all the background information on how most folks who are African Americans have come through from the south to the north, moved for industrial jobs. A function of taking up those jobs was living closer to that work and everything we do at the local, municipal, and beyond level for zoning only reinforces it. This is true whether you're rich or poor. And I think Bob Bullard had a lot to do with making it important to people to recognize that it's not a function of wealth that makes you more likely to be risked. It's a function of how much melanin you have. Can we just talk about who Robert Moses was and what you meant by that historical example? Sure. Uh, well, so let's talk about two folks. Robert um, Olmsted, who designed Prospect Park, where which is the park that I grew up near. He designed green space so that it functioned as a communal opportunity zone. Robert Moses uh, designed highways, byways, and intersected them through parks largely to separate people by race. That is a set of conversations that have been had in architectural and urban design circles for a long time about what does it mean to develop and plan cities and what are you planning for? Uh, there are folks who are notorious for good reason because deciding to put communities under over and near a bypass, a highway, increases their likelihood of being poisoned. And even before all of that science was uh, at the top of people's minds, it was really clear that what we were doing is separating people from opportunity. So Tamara, that is a really interesting point. And I think about how we're designing cities now. And I live in Arlington County, which is supposed to be a really smart green it's a county, actually, not a city. It's very densely populated. And the Metro Corridor has grown up. Um, it has become much more affluent. It has a lot more commercial establishments in it. It allows for higher density. 
and at the same time seems to push people out because there isn't enough affordable housing. So it seems that even in the neighborhoods that they're trying, that are supposedly improving, the people who have lived there for decades are not able to continue living there. So I just would love to hear from you a little bit more about like, how do you design things in a smart way where you make sure that the people who've been there and who have built those areas up and have made them their own aren't then pushed out? Yeah, so I'll go back a little and talk a little bit about why I mentioned Robert Moses. So he was known as the master builder for the 20th century. Things he did that we shouldn't do, change shorelines, build bridges, uh, build in tunnels where people have had their lives, add roadways and transform the way people live. He is the person who created the uh, modern concept of suburbia. So if folks are taking claim to things that they own, it's because the American dream told them that success would be to move from the places there where they were. New York will always be my baseline context. In New York, people came on every kind of boat. Let's just leave it at that for the moment. And as they moved on to the original shoreline, they moved out further when they had money from tenements, from uh, really compact housing structures to being able to move out towards suburbia. And when we think about um, the idea that they were trying to do that because they were crowded, but also pushed to do that because it made... uh, it made for an economic success story. We built people into a set of lifestyle choices, um, in a, into a locked into a transportation system that ties them forever to fossil fuel economy because we've gotten rid of um, communal transportation opportunities. And I think that there is a lot to say about new design. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of really great ideas. One of my favorite books, it's called 2100, A Dystopian Utopia by Vanessa Keith. It's actually a really good book about what kinds of structures would have to be built uh, once we've ruined everything. So when extreme flooding is happening every day all over Maryland from um, Talbot County to Baltimore City, uh, what kinds of things will last? What kinds of things will be able to stand water coming in and out? And I think in thinking about um, smart growth, which Maryland has largely been huge on, uh, uh, urban housing design and rural housing uh, responses, what we build, where we build it, and why we build it. I think there's a new generation of folks who are taking this on, but the question of how do we move people who were displaced on an entirely different regime is an open question for city planners now. And and that means uh, it's especially going to be a unique challenge given that pandemics will only continue to come and make the timing for all of these things really difficult to pull off. Tamara, I um, read the article from um, Dino Grandoni on uh, the environmental movement in Washington Post a couple days ago. And it just got me thinking about all sorts of perspectives, right? I think when you think about the urban planning perspective, but even, you know, some of these other pieces, that piece really focused on the fact that the environmental movement is largely built and run by white people for white people. And I think, um, you know, there's been some obviously introspection and changes last few years. But one of the side effects on the urban planning side that they talk about is that when the cap and trade bill was pursued in, you know, 2009-2010, a lot of studies after the fact showed that it would have actually exacerbated problems for frontline communities and actually concentrated pollution even more, um, which was an unintended side effect, I want to believe. And that then begs the question of whether more voices could have pointed that out to people, uh, people who are probably susceptible to hearing 
that and changing the legislation to accommodate for that, but they never sought out those voices in a way that brought that to the table. And I, I say that as somebody who constructs projects on a regular basis, and I fear that I have similar you know, issues with where I'm citing my own power plants or where, you know, we're doing wind and solar or anaerobic digesters or et cetera. Like I just, I fear that we're not allowing enough voices to participate in the process um, because of the, you know, desire for speed. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I think uh, as someone who in my former work at the Maryland Environmental Health Networks basically spent my uh, in a period of two years trying to lobby the Public Service Commission, the Maryland General Assembly at the same time uh, to, to take up the question of whether or not a basic health impact assessment could change the way we design our energy grid response and transmission lines. So looking at that process, it was a series of asking the call and the question over and over again. If I can bring people into the space who live in communities where there are five or six different things killing them at once and mention that not being consulted in a meaningful way, not have being presented with all the information, not being um, given, given information that can be cumulative so that the problems don't continue to be cumulative. Specifically, health impact assessments in Maryland. We're super lucky to have Johns Hopkins in our backyard, right? And University of Maryland in our backyard. There are some really incredible people there who are thinking about what it means to uh, measure what you already know, the data that the Public Health uh, Commission, are, that, that, pu- that public health records would already have about how sick people are, uh, what kind of conditions they face, what the community design plan is doing or not doing. So a lot of the fixes that I worked on were just demands for agencies talking to each other about information they already had. So if you know that most of the community has COPD or a higher rate of heart attacks or asthma or chronic conditions, and you're going to propose to do something, uh, the same folks who are making sure a project is LEED certified are checking to make sure that uh, environmental justice process happens so that there's some form of meaningful engagement can deepen that by taking a gander at what the health and information is, and then bringing all that together in a process that speaks to communities about what the likely consequences are so that they can inform a design before it becomes a thing they have to fight. It also seems tomorrow like the data and the voices are really important, but also being super intentional about making sure that this is part of every single decision. So just as an example, like the chief sustainability officer for companies used to be like, oh, yeah, that's that guy working over there on that one thing. Or, oh, let's get a woman on our board. So we'll just have like a one person rather than like actually having an intentional policy to make sure this is part of every decision that you make that you're always asking the question so that when you say you take a decision on oh let's lower energy rates for everybody well that sounds really good except what you're not doing is addressing then the energy burden of people who whose energy bill is actually the greater percentage of what they have to spend every month so i'm just wondering if you could address sort of how do you then embed this in every decision that's made so that it's not just tacked on as like, oh, now let's bring in the EJ folks to take a look at this, but like make them make everybody part of the decision. So when I have a rule of thumb, which is that if you want to ask a group of people anything, you should at least ask three. Uh, one, because it gives those folks a chance to disagree. So if you have, if you want to ask women how they feel and you only ask one, you're definitely not going to get the opinion of all women. If you ask <laughs> African-Americans, I assure you three will not be enough, but it's at least a generally good place to start. So if you go with the rule of three in terms of how you design groups of people who give you expert information, that you look at information from a couple of different levels and recognize that experience is a form of um 
uh, expert information that might come in a different package but is equally useful, I think that's important. But I also think, as you pointed out, having regularized process where the, where the process itself is interrogated with more information would generally make it better. Um, doing this as a matter, of course, in, in Maryland has mostly been about the CPCN process, about uniformity across the Public Service Commission, about making sure that communities have an opportunity to know things and making those processes flat and static and regular so much so that it becomes exactly as boring as most of those things are if you sit in them all day waiting to speak for three minutes. But but what it will do is produce robust information that allows the public to trust the folks who are in the decision making seat to have a good set of perspectives on what is going to happen. In our own work at 350, we talk a lot about what it means to have folks in the room looking at the information. Uh, practitioners come from every part of the work. And if you have practitioners at every level putting input into what the final product is going to be, you end up being in a better situation. That's as true in a mass mobilization as it is in the crafting of good legislation or any form of uh, storytelling that is data, because data is just storytelling that people can feel less emotional about. I could go on a whole tangent about which came first, the data or the storytelling in terms of like the chicken and egg scenario that communities have to go through to make a point that they're being hurt. But that's probably a whole nother program. (laughs) <laughs> so this is very clearly a local issue as are, you know, many environmental and energy issues. What about the national discourse and how does that feed into this? I mean, what good stories do we have? So if I think back over the last 15 years as I followed this movement, I mean, the last three years or so ha- have brought some pretty extraordinary changes in um, the diversity um, of the movement. And, uh, you know, there are a lot more young people involved and the discourse around how to broaden climate policy and make sure that we are focusing not just on, you know, energy specifically, not just on, you know, green jobs specifically, but but thinking about these structural problems that we have. Um, How has that influenced things for the better? Do you think it has brought improvements in the way we think about this issue? Mm, So I would say the environmental justice movement is a much bigger part of social justice work. And climate is like a leaf on the tree on the branch of that thing because it's it's just a, the way we carved out a very specific part of it focused on emissions. But the EJ movement itself has done great work in sounding the alarm. They've developed a framework that's pushed for change. They fought the law and impacted the makeup of structures like nonprofit organizations that have had missions that, that do the work but failed to serve their own missions. Um, I think... What we've been seeing in the last few years feels a lot more like um, the architects of our work have changed. And as the folks, as uh, someone who's been in this work in probably every seat, there was a period in my life where I moved every three years doing environmental work because that's about how long I could stand, be inside of a um, somebody's machine being told what to do as though I don't understand my own community. So I just hopped around. And as I, as I did that, I realized that the problems were at the highest levels. So not having people of color in the boardroom, not having folks at the table to make strategy decisions, those kinds of things got on the menu of doing the work better because we had some horrifying watersheds. Katrina opened people's eyes. Flint made enviros feel really uh, weak because when you specialize in something and that thing kills people, it's hard to be to, to make another analysis about why that happened. So I think the, uh, since 2014, uh, some folks have been making a real push at bringing in the communities that they serve because 
Flint happened because of a lack of relationship. People didn't know folks on the ground, so they did not respond to the information and they failed to do their jobs. So I think watching that happen in real time, recognizing the humanity in it has given some orgs an impetus to move folks from just being scenery at the end of the conversation or the emotional pull to back up your data to figuring out what does it mean to develop and co-generate strategy with the same communities, taking in everything they know as input. What role does mobilization in the streets play for the climate movement? So if we think about what's happening now with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, we have seen this pressure campaign change the way that some police forces um, you know, outlaw certain chokeholds or they promote de-escalation policies. And um, we still have a long way to go, but there have been some changes. Uh, you have previously said that if you don't get enough people in the streets, they get beat back by the systems meant to keep them down. So what role does physical mobilization in the streets play for pushing this issue forward in the climate movement? Uh, it makes the public argument. Uh, Communities have been fighting privately, separately through processes for a very long time. The reason a pressure campaign raises the temperature for the work is because it makes people decide. It creates a really straightforward choice between what is the right thing to do and what is the thing that you would like to keep doing. So amongst other tactics, which include uh, connecting with the system, engaging with it, uh, theorizing who are, um, what are the, who are the folks who could create change if they wanted to, what are the reasons they do and do not do that, what are the um, incentives, what are the carrots and sticks, all of that work is happening at the same time. But to watch innocent people be harmed in the street is a lot like what it feels like to have that happen when the cameras are not on. So doing, so taking that up as a tactic, uh, young folks, uh, and I, and I'll say a fair few, you know, not so young folks at 350, we focus on multiracial and multigenerational uh, mobilization, largely because the energy needs wisdom and vice versa. So if a, if a bunch of senior citizens got out there and did it, it would be my old work uh, where at uh, um, we I spent a lot of time mobilizing with senior citizens who were like, I've had enough freedoms. It's time to get some some jail time if that means it's going to solve problems, if it's going to change the narrative. So I think this moment of multigenerational uh, work with lots of folks who are coming out for the first time is is an argument that there is no one who's exempted from what's happening to us. And until that translates into work in the rooms, the narrow hallways and closed doors, we'll continue to use it. But it's powerful. It is visual. A picture speaks for a thousand words and thousands of children speak to millions of stories about what is not happening in our everyday uh, cultural mix. So the one other thing I wanted to get your opinion on is around how the environmental movement has changed. I was talking to the Biden campaign recently about, you know, all the Apollo Alliance stuff we did in 2008, which was 3000 pages of data and job creation and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, I think what we've been introduced to in the last couple of years is this concept of a Green New Deal. And the real difference between the two is actually social justice and environmental justice. And, I'd have to say that there was like blank stares looking back at me. Like, I think that folks were still thinking about this as stimulus, putting more money out there, getting people back to work, et cetera. There was no thought process as to how the environmental justice, social justice stuff would be actually, you know, put on top of that. I'm curious whether you have thoughts around, you know, how the congressional committee process has worked in the last year, whether we're actually closer to a better set of policies than we had in 2009, um, whether we've learned anything. 
I think we have learned some things. Uh, one, we've identified that there's a much larger group of people who can be persuaded. Uh, I think folks are dancing around the name of the Green New Deal, but are trying to figure out what are their entry points. And I think there's going to be a real convergence of every sector, nonprofit organizations, individuals, uh, folks on congressional committees, uh, the folks who actually read things, the LDs and the LAs, who, who, who uh, do so much of the work of thinking about how do we incorporate the people we answer to in their humanity in the work that we're trying to build. And I think it feels a lot like you're either relevant by, by picking up on this work or you are irrelevant and trying to figure out how to be seen. So I actually think some of the stuff we've been seeing come across from what used to be our opposition are what are our approaches to a Green New Deal? How do we focus on accountability? What are the state level uh, triggers that can be signaled by a federal market shift or signals from the executive? In speaking to and at the Biden campaign, we have said that that conversations with environmental justice communities have to start with investments because nothing can be built without investments. So I do think there are a couple of different set of forces coming together to make um, the lack of action on a Green New Deal are the less to end that as we move into this uh, hopefully <laughs> a possible next year and a half of work because getting into the same room will be problematic, but getting on the same page doesn't have to be. And I think that there are earnest folks at in, in the House and the Senate who are trying to get there and folks who will be pushed endlessly and ruthlessly by folks at 350 nonstop and, of, and our coalitions of folks who recognize that we can mobilize all day, but we also need to mobilize within the halls of power to make change. So I, so I feel pretty, for a person who's professionally skeptical and cautiously optimistic even about my dinner choices, I feel a little bit better <laughs> going into this year because people have failed to bring the Green New Deal to life and they want to do something about that because it turns out that's all that people want. That makes me really happy to hear. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you. Tamara Tolza Laughlin is an environmental attorney and the North America director for 350.org. Thank you so much for your time and insights. We really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. Stay safe tomorrow. A quick pause here to talk about our sponsors. We're brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is taking the pandemic very seriously with its suppliers and with its customers. When it realized the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak, it put together a task force to facilitate quick decision-making in the face of uncertainty to protect employees and to protect its customers. It prioritized the safety of employees by investing in measures to make sure its factory workers were safe from infection. And the company is collaborating closely with suppliers and customers to ensure it can deliver inverter solutions safely and on schedule. As a leading supplier of inverters in the U.S., it's also leveraged its network across the country to distribute face masks to communities in need. You can learn more about SunGrow at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Based in the U.S., Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. In fact, Core Power is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing in the U.S. owned by an American company. Once operational, the 1 million square foot facility will have 10 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity. It's also going to leverage a cogeneration plant to be carbon neutral during regular hours and provide power back to the local grid when demand is low. From sourcing critical minerals to battery recycling management, Core Power, with its partners, offers an end-to-end -end energy storage management solution. Core Power's newly commissioned 2-gigawatt-hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers for integration and testing. Learn more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E, corepower.com.
More than 30 million Americans are out of work. Unpaid bills are stacking up. Summer is already here and it is getting hot. The increasing heat is a problem for people at home. And those unpaid bills, uh, what's that going to mean for utilities? First, let's talk about the people who are at home. In one study done in Phoenix by the National Center for Atmospheric Research, 38% of people said they're too hot at home. For some, the air conditioner was just broken. Others were rationing the AC to keep the electric bill down. But it's not just a question of comfort. Heat is deadly. Heat stress kills more people than hurricanes and floods combined. Heat and housing was our senior editor Ingrid Lobet's area of research for her master's at Johns Hopkins. So we thought we'd have her here to start off this discussion. Hey, Ingrid, how are you? Hey, Stephen. Hi, Jigger and Catherine. So a listener flagged some new research out of USC about who gets to have air conditioning. I want to tackle that first. What is it telling us? Yeah, and first I want to give a shout out to Sammy Roth, the energy reporter at the Los Angeles Times, who has a really fine new newsletter called Boiling Point, which I think is how a bunch of us found out about that new research from USC. It was Mo Chen, Kelly Sanders, and George Ban Weiss, uh, published in Environmental Letters. It may be a surprise to some people that a lot of people in California don't have air conditioning, even in some of the hottest areas of the state. And what they looked at, they analyzed smart meter data, 3 billion records, 180,000 households, and they found that it wasn't the heat in an area. It wasn't the climate in an area that, as you would probably think, should be the predictor for whether or not you have air conditioning in your house to keep cool. It was poverty. Poverty was the best predictor for whether a household has air conditioning. And they found that people in a lot of the hot parts of the city, where we already know that people have a dearth of parks, uh, where there aren't enough trees to shade things and keep them cool, as many as 60% don't have air conditioning. And that's not even the highest statistic for lack of air conditioning uh, for hot parts of Los Angeles. Some earlier research from UCLA found that 70% of people in the central part of the city, which is overwhelmingly Latino, Asian American, and African American, so really feeding into what we've been talking about at the top of the show, don't have air conditioning. This is something that government is really going to have to take a close look at. We're going to have to get a handle on where people do and don't have air conditioning. Because as you pointed out, Stephen, if people are getting hot at school, if people are getting hot at work, they must be able to come home and cool down their bodies. If you just wake up in the morning after a bad night's sleep and are, are too hot all day long again on a second and third day, that has real health consequences. It has consequences for how clearly you can think, your reaction time, your decision-making, and uh, it can be deadly, and it's going to get a lot worse. Yes, this story intersects with exactly what we've been talking about. And coronavirus also complicates this picture because you have a lot of these cooling centers that people can go to, and now their capacity is much lower because they have to socially distance. Uh, and, and if we have more outbreaks, it could you know, cause serious problems for keeping these cooling centers up and running. Um, how big of a problem is this? That is a huge problem because um, not only are they having to observe new social distancing so that so many fewer people who will be able to fit in these centers, but a lot of them are just flat out closed. I mean, what we refer to as cooling centers, that's maybe a more formal designation, but anybody in the neighborhood that's a hot neighborhood, they know where they can go 
you know, to have the kids do homework or if they're lucky enough to work at home to do their work where they can actually concentrate because it's not 85 degrees in the house. And those are often the libraries and places like that. Well, libraries are flat out closed right now. There's a huge issue with cooling centers. Which ones are going to be open? How many people can fit fit in them? And whether people are going to be safe from catching a virus in them. And isn't it worse in urban settings where you have this heat island impact and you can get up to five degrees hotter than you would when you're further spaced further apart? Yes, that's that's a really good point. So um, you had the USC researchers who were looking at things based on um, energy use data, but we have other tools also. We have eyes in the sky, we have satellites with remote sensors. They are already able to perceive, to see which areas of the city are hot, too hot, and crucially are not actually cooling down enough at night. And there's some pretty interesting maps of that. So heat waves are going to become more intense. They're going to become more frequent and all of that discomfort is added on on top of the urban heat island effect, which already disproportionately affects people. And so how big of a problem is this in terms of people's inability to pay, Ingrid? You know, this is something that I think is really underappreciated. The number of people who cannot pay their bills uh, at all and get shut off is just huge. In 2017, there were 886,000 people shut off for inability to pay just in the state of California. Okay, so clearly this is a major problem. And right now, a lot of jurisdictions are prohibiting utilities from shutting the power off for people if they can't pay the bill. And these moratoria are because so many people have lost their jobs, but they may be lifted soon. So this problem could be exacerbated across the country as the summer heat gets worse. What is the status of these temporary bans of shutoffs, Jigger? So I think it's, you know, it goes along with sort of the reopening from the COVID crisis, right? And so I think as we reopen economies, many states are now allowing utilities to start collecting on these bills and shutting people off. There are some more progressive utilities like the Sacramento Municipal Utility District that has said that they will not collect these bills, um, you know, and shut people off going into 2021. I, I think that one of the things that we should just be careful of is that no one is erasing these debts. And so regardless of whether people are getting shut off or not, they are still on the hook for paying these debts back at some point in the future. So it creates a lot of anxiety and, you know, overhang very similar to, you know, what people have spilled a lot of ink over on student loan debt. Yeah, that's totally right. So it's it's a moratorium on disconnections temporarily, but not waiving the bills. Now, what some utilities are trying to do is at least waive late fees and work on repayment schemes, but they're still on the hook for the energy use. And if you're on the hook for that and you don't have enough money, then chances are you're going to turn everything off that you have to, including your air conditioning. Right. When uh, people's unemployment money gets cut off, they may very well have balloon payments of rent or mortgage that they have to pay. And their utility bill is just going to be one more bill that they need to pay. And it's looking like a lot of money that people are going to have to come up with. And how are they going to do that? This is another area that you know I find is just so poorly thought out, right? So on the one hand, you're trying to get um, legislation uh, passed to fill the holes uh, in utility budgets, which are three to 4% of their revenue. Um, and then on the other hand, you're trying to pay people an extra $600 a week, getting them back up to sort of 18, 19 bucks an hour on the unemployment side uh, to help them pay bills. And I, I feel like 
there needs to just be a more comprehensive approach here, right? I mean, part of the part of the challenge is that, you know, we have 12 million homes that still need to get weatherized that were identified in the 2009 era stimulus bill. These are the same homes that are having challenges on the air conditioning side. I think you, you separately have health and safety issues from, you know, lead paint and all sorts of regulations that have never been fully implemented that affect human health. And so to me, this is a really opportune time to actually solve problems um, for people, create stimulus, and figure out a way to solve the problem. But I think instead, we're going to keep spending $250 billion a month on unemployment insurance, another $30 billion to fill the holes with utilities, and not really figure out how to systemically solve the problem. What is the financial impact on utilities? Uh, you know, as of last month, it was about $20 billion. My sense is it's growing every single month. Um, you know, I think for some utility analysts are talking about 3.7% uh, impact on revenues, 2.9% impact on revenues, et cetera. So it's somewhere in that range, sort of 3 to 4% impact on revenues. To put that in context, the electric utility industry gets around $420 billion a year in revenue, and this is probably a $30 billion hit. Catherine, I know you've been paying attention to cooperatives as well. What happens to them if a large number of customers can't pay? Yeah, and remember, co-ops are in 48 states and serve about 42 million Americans. That's about one in eight people. They're usually spread out. They're rural in nature. They do not have shareholders the way utilities do. Instead, they they return revenues back to their consumers that are their owners. And so they have very, very lean margins. So they don't have a lot of give when it comes to losing revenue. So they project, NRECA projects collectively by 2022, there will be $10 billion of losses by co-ops. And only about $2.6 billion is in unpaid bills, which we're talking about people who were just simply unable to pay their electric bills because they're without work. But the other $7.4 billion is in operating revenues, and their electricity sales have fallen by 5% because of the lack of economic activity. So that's all of those large customers that really represent a much larger proportion of their sales. So it's industrial customers, it's agriculture. So a lot of these rely heavily on ag. And for example, in Iowa, one of the co-ops was saying 65% of our revenue is from commercial and industrial and all three ethanol plants in our service territory have shut down. So a lot of this has to do with economic activity. And some of those sectors, like the agriculture sector, were already in trouble. And so there is no positive market outcome right now that they can foresee because they first have to get economic activity back. And they say, you know, to get act economic activity, you also need childcare. And how are people going to get that if they're not able to you know, be together. Um, even in rural settings, you have to have some kind of childcare, whether it's in someone's home or in an, you know, some kind of a facility, and you can't continue economic activity. So it has really been devastating for co-ops, and I think it's going to be exacerbated by the fact that certainly they have very, very lean margins. The energy coronavirus nexus continues to get more complicated. Uh, Ingrid Lobet, our senior editor, thanks for joining us to talk through this. You're welcome. Let's turn now to a new approach for a residential demand response to close out the show. The Michigan utility Consumers Energy is hoping to wring 14 megawatts of peak power from its customers using traditional demand response, residential demand response. Um, they're going to remotely control the thermostats in people's houses. Now, typically, residential demand response is when you control the actual AC unit, but 
This is a little bit different. They're going to be using smart thermostats. And what's actually different about this, we've been using smart thermostats for demand response programs for a while, but they're actually giving away 100,000 Google Nest thermostats. And together with the firm Uplight, they plan to bundle all those participating customers and turn them into residential reductions. And then they're going to bid that saved power into the Midwestern system operator. And it's part of this broader 2030 clean energy commitment. And consumers actually want to double energy efficiency from 10% to 20% of its peak capacity by 2030. And one reason is because they're trying to re retire all of their coal plants and reduce reliance on natural gas peaker plants. Um, and the folks at Green Tech Media have a really good story on what they're doing here. So Catherine, tease this apart for us. Um, how is this new in any way for residential demand response? Yeah, I reached out directly to consumers to Lauren Youngdahl Snyder, who's their vice president of customer experience, and she she heads up, you know, all their renewables, demand response, efficiency programs, um, really everything but operations. And she said, what this does is it allows them to value stack all of their rebates and their programs for efficiency and demand response. It allows them to get in the door with efficiency, especially on their gas side. So they've put tens of thousands of these smart thermostats into their gas units um, for houses to start doing efficiency. And demand response will simply be added to that. So, so far, I think they've deployed 3,000 to the electricity customers. And this really allows customers to be able to um, both help the utility, certainly with the demand curve, and they get a rebate for that. They get $25 a month for that. Um, but they also are able to then lower their electric bill. So it's a win for the customer. And, and a lot of these are targeted at, at low and middle income communities. So that's very helpful to all types of customers. Um, but then it also helps the utility maintain their load shape and get to where they need to go on their climate targets. So instead of actually taking control of an AC unit, they are pre-cooling homes using these smart thermostats and attempting to smooth out the peak here. Uh, Wood McKenzie's latest data indicates there are more than 10 gigawatts of available residential demand response in the U.S. power system. So, Jigger, um, how much of this sort of pre-cooling strategy could be used to meet that 10 gigawatts of available response, demand response? Yeah, just to put some relatively simple math on the table, uh, you know, 100,000 thermostats like this are roughly 10 million bucks. Um, so, you know, you're really talking about um, a relatively small investment. Each one of these air conditioners, depending on, you know, how big the house is, how big the apartment is, etc., you know, can be two to four to five, six kilowatts of load. And so it's pretty substantial amounts of load that you're controlling. Um, and, you know, this is something we've been pushing, obviously, in the energy gang for God knows, like, you know, five, six years. Um, and what, you, what you're looking at that's different here is in the past with, you know, programs with ITRON or Converge or some of these other players, um, the utility was really saying, we're going to deploy this when there's a lot of pain in the system, right? When you've hit code red and, you know, we really need help. And, um, and what Consumers is now saying is actually, in order to shut down these coal plants, we actually need a resource that we're going to use maybe every day. Um, and, you know, if we, if they need to, and, and that's a big difference, right? It's something similar to what California has actually announced recently too, with the implementation finally of for quarter, 
you know, what is it, 745 um, under John Wellinghoff, where, you know, Derms and, and folks are now finally getting full payment out of the California ISO. Derms, Distributed Energy Resource Management Systems. Yeah, exactly. So when you think about, you know, like companies like Ohm Connect, companies like Uplight are now able to actually make buku bucks off of doing this, right? When you think about the returns that they were making before, you know, they were getting four, five, six, seven percent returns on this stuff. Now you actually could get 20, 25% returns on capital um, for doing this and save the consumers 90% versus putting in a natural gas peaker plant or even large central station battery storage. Yeah, I think what this is also pointing to is that customers rely on utilities to do what Lauren called the blocking and tackling. So it's, you know, keeping your lights on, making sure you have resilience, that, you know, that your bills are not too high, that sort of thing. And that's what their most of their interactions with customers are. That programs like this, and um, certainly Uplight and Google are doing this with consumers. Google also has projects with National Grid and Eversource in Massachusetts. There's a bring your own device program in New York that... Uh, companies like Energy Hub and others have taken advantage of. By partnering with all of these innovative companies and providers of technology, you then build a different type of trust with your customer base. So your customers can then trust you to help them on energy efficiency and demand response and keep their bills lower. And I think that that gets the utilities in a very different position with their customers. A word of disclosure here, we actually produced a couple seasons of a podcast for Uplight called Illuminators. And in the second season, we featured Patty Poppy, the CEO of Consumers Energy. And she talked about her personal journey as a CEO. She was once a climate skeptic. She brought together a bunch of scientific and energy planning voices within the company. And they realized we need to decarbonize fairly quickly. And in fact, we need to shut down our coal plants. And so that was quite an interesting journey for her personally. And it's materialized into new initiatives like this with this 100,000 free thermostat demand response program. So Catherine, talk about consumers energy generally and their transition as a company. What's happening here? Yeah, so they're trying to go to net zero by 2040. So it's pretty good goals. Their commission is very, very supportive and has given them some pretty good signals that they need to go forward. And I think Patty's done a couple of things. One is she's really changed the culture of her utility and everybody I've talked to at Consumers uh, reflects her leadership and what she has said. But I think part of that is also because of their intersection with their customers. You know, their customers with this program, for example, will save 15% on their bill. That's great. That's good. But what they have also found is that the customers don't just care about cost savings. They actually are even more pleased when they find out that this is impacting climate change and saving the planet. So I think that that is a feedback loop that is really helpful to util- for utilities to see because Patty's trying to lead, but when you try to change the culture throughout a utility, having a feedback loop from your customer saying, no, we want you to do this, this is good, is only to the good. The only other thing I'd highlight is I think that part of what we forget here is we sometimes focus on these really being hardware solutions. And I think where the rubber meets the road here, where consumers and Uplight are both, I think, doing a lot of great work is one is around grid integration and grid operations. Um, this resource has never been uh, integrated into the grid operations group. And I think consumers is trying to do this for the first time in a major U.S. utility. And the second thing is that I think that this has to be paired with consumer education. And I think Uplight 
through its mergers, et cetera, has a consumer education arm. And they're going to be doing a lot of consumer education as part of this, saying, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's why it's good for you. Here's why, you know, if you participate more um, openly, then we might give you rebates, et cetera. And so I think that that pairing really matters because I think for a lot of people, you know, they think this is really just a tech bro solution. You put in a bunch of hardware and then stuff happens magically. And the consumer education and the integration with grid operations, I think, is critical and frankly hasn't been done well before. Let's close out the show and give our listeners our free electrons. Uh, Jigger, what's yours this week? Well, mine is, um, you know, a sad one around uh, a mentor of mine, uh, David Freeman, who died at 94 years old. Uh, he was known as the Green Cowboy. Um, amazingly, I'm not sure that he's actually uh, a person that is universally known in the community. His most recent role um, that I interacted with him in was on, a, on the board of Friends of the Earth. And I remember Eric Pica, who's the head of Friends of the Earth, told me he was uh, embarrassed to say that he didn't really know David when he first met him 10 years ago. I mean, David Freeman was born during the Great Depression. He, you know, worked at the Tennessee Valley Authority, you know, joined his boss in D.C. in 1961 to join the Federal Power Commission. He stayed on to serve in the Johnson administration. And then Jimmy Carter put him back in Tennessee and made him the head of the TVA. He sort of has this like Forrest Gump, you know, background where he's always in the right places at the right time, but people don't necessarily view him as uh, this rock star, even though he was an engineer, a policymaker. He then read, uh, ran the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. He ran LADWP. When the California electricity crisis occurred, Gray Davis turned to him to, you know, run the California Power Authority. I think, you know, when... It wasn't sexy to care about clean energy. David Freeman cared about clean energy, right? He made sure that he was working on climate issues in the 80s and 90s when no one else cared. He made sure that solar panels were being piloted, that deployment-led innovation was being pushed at the utility level, right? Part of the reason why Sacramento Municipal Utility District has the reputation it has for being prosumer is because of David Freeman's legacy. And I think now more than ever, um, we need to find real utility champions who actually did the right thing and not just put out press releases around doing the right thing. And David never put out press releases about what he did. He just did it and let you know folks evaluate his actions. And so you know, I mourn him, one of the big giants of our industry. Thank you for sharing his story. That's a great remembrance. Catherine, what's your free electron? So I was just going to comment on Jiggers because I did not know David Freeman, but I was thinking a lot about this. Um, and Tamara alluded to this as well as sort of this multi-generational need to connect folks who've been working on this for a really long time to the people who are now just getting activated. And similarly to the way that our entire economy in this country was built on the backs originally of enslaved people and then coal miners and that industry. We have to look to folks who've been working for a really long time, um, people like Ralph Nader, uh, who was my my parents really loved, uh, to David Freeman and others who have been working for decades to try 
to at least get us to where we are now. And whether that's in organizing or thinking about the way we change our culture or in just getting us clean energy solutions that work now, there are so many people who to whom we owe a debt of gratitude. And I'm glad that Jigger brought up David Freeman as one of those people. And I think we just have to keep that in mind when we move forward, that the younger generation is activated and super, super important. But we also have to remember the people who came before us. Amen. Well, that's the end of the show. And we really appreciate you being with us. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my lovely co-hosts, and Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Hit us up there on social media if you want to suggest show ideas or questions. Please suggest some questions for our live show next Tuesday, June 9th, next Tuesday. That means that we have to get cracking here and come up with topics to talk about. So as soon as we stop recording here, we are going to go through your listener questions and... We're going to come up with some things that are relevant to you. So you still have time to submit those. Go to gtm.cnf.io to submit questions or just submit them there on Twitter and we'll take a look. Um, Also, give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or anywhere you get your podcasts. It does help. We really appreciate it. And we will catch you next week for our live show at 2 p.m. on June 9th. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. We'll catch you next time.